Thanks, Dr. Perlman. Um, we've had, as a sort of part of this exercise session, some more specific questions about different types of ataxias that I thought maybe we can sort of talk briefly about. There are obviously many, many questions, and so we'll sort of go through them, and hopefully you can, okay. I'm sure that you can give, you know, hour-long lectures on each of this, but hopefully we'll sort of give a brief view. There was a question specifically about sort of myoclonic dystonic ataxia, Oh. And someone just sort of wants to learn about that in general. Could you sort of say a few words about this particular type of ataxia? Myoclonic dystonic ataxia is obviously a symptom combination that includes ataxia, may include dystonia, which comes from a different part of the brain, the basal ganglia, which communicates with the cerebellum, and also includes myoclonus, which can come from the cerebellum or from the upper part of the brain or from the spinal cord. So myoclonic dystonic ataxia is a description of how the ataxia looks and what pathways in and out of the cerebellum are involved. It also is an opening for treatment. There are medicines that can help dystonia. There are medicines that can help the symptoms of myoclonus. Um, and as I said, there are symptomatic medicines that can be used for the ataxic part. There are very specific genetic ataxias that has that combination of symptoms, the myoclonus, the dystonia, and the ataxia, so that if I saw an individual who had just a, no family history, but they came in with the, that combination of symptoms, there are you know, certain genetic tests I would want to do to make sure that it wasn't just an, you know, an unusual form that slipped through without a family history, but was actually targeting that gene. So... Mm -hmm. The way an ataxia looks, whether it's a pure ataxia or an ataxia with complications, can often direct your genetic testing. But the Got key it. thing in myoclonic dystonic ataxia, it sounds like, is to treat the symptoms, get those symptoms under control. So there's, you know, because I would imagine it's painful and it, you know, greatly, you know, interferes with coordination, um, use of hands, standing, walking, and all those things could be improved with symptomatic management. How many types of ataxias are there? Is there a big, big list? long list of ataxias either with known causes or ataxias with, um, that are so specific in the way they look that you figure this has to be its own type of ataxia. So in our ataxia clinic, um, over the years, you know, looking at maybe 1,500 patients that we saw over a 10-year period, we identified... It must be, I'm looking at my list now, it looks like there's 50 different types of ataxia that we found wow. in that 1,500 number group of patients. About um, 600 of them, a little less than half, were genetic, and of that half were dominantly inherited, half were recessively inherited, and the others, you know, about 900, were unknown could be genetic, mm -hmm. could be non-genetic. And in the adult ataxia world, I mean, those are the people that we're actually most interested in doing exome sequencing on, certainly mm -hmm. in the adult population. Um, you know, I know that prior speakers were talking about, you know, children with very severe forms of ataxia, but, you know, in my institution, we're very interested in adults with sometimes very modest ataxia, where we suspect there could be a genetic factor that exome sequencing might reveal. Mm -hmm. So these are the people that we're kind of keeping track of and hoping to involve in genetic research. 
Got it. Yeah, and, and I'm actually happy to say, I didn't say that during the regular section, that RGI is working with UCLA, actually, to, to perform exome sequencing as well oh. for, for patients. Yeah. There was so a particular question about... various studies done with people with no family history, there's a, at least a 2% chance that one of the known genes is behind it, and the family history was just missed. So even uh -huh. though there's no family history, I think genetic testing is absolutely worth doing either traditional types of testing or, or the exome sequencing, depending on, you know, the, the protocols you've got in place. Got it. There was a specific question about sort of SCA1 and treatment. So maybe you can just sort of talk in general about sort of are there special treatments for, for different types of ataxia? Yeah, it's or? interesting. Most of the ideas about specific treatments for specific genetic ataxias have come out of the animal research that has been done. You know, animals that have been given the ataxia gene, and you can actually look at the brain and see which nerve cells are affected and how they're affected. And then, you know, you can look at, you know, the wide variety of chemicals and drugs available to see which might alter it. So lithium was found through those types of studies to modify one of the pathways that is targeted in ataxia type 1, and it, felt to, it was felt to you know, salvage that pathway, protect that pathway, um, and actually entered a, a phase 1 study for patients with ataxia type 1. And there's currently some move to get funding to bring it into a phase 2 study. Um, you know, as, as I think there were some suggestions that it was beneficial. I know there's one group within the cooperative ataxia group that is trying to get funding to do a Raleazole study in um, ataxia type 3, and it might also include ataxias type 1 and 2. Um, and that's a more general drug that is felt to have more general activity independent of the type of genetic ataxia. Certainly the gene therapies, if ataxias type 1, 2, and 3 have the same type of mutation, just affecting different proteins, different genes, potentially the same drug could be used to modify the, the damaging effects of that mutation um, over several different locations, you know, where the gene for ataxia type 1, 2, or 3 is involved. So, you know, there's certainly for specific types of ataxia, Friedreich's ataxia, you know, a definite push to develop very disease-specific treatments. But I think we also have the advantage of being, you know, better knowledgeable about how different types of mutations work mutations that stop production of a protein, mutations that cause an extra damaging effect um, to come from that gene. And, you know, one drug could work for several different diseases. And there's a lot of collaborative work going on to try to maximize those resources. Ataxia is rare, and we have to use every dollar and every, you know, researcher we have to try to get as much mileage um, for all people with ataxia. Definitely. And there was actually a question about sort of funding for rare disease research. It was interesting, sort of more sort of the, sort of the ethical dilemma of shouldn't money be given for rare diseases? Of course, we think so. But how would you respond for someone who feels like, you know, we should be funding more common diseases and, and because it affects more people and less the rare diseases? You know, it's interesting. The work that has been done in Friedreich's ataxia, which is a relatively rare disease that affects energy production in the brain, is leading to the development of drugs that may also be helpful for other diseases, more common diseases, where lack of energy production in the brain is part of the problem. Parkinson's disease. There is definitely one step in the development of Parkinson's disease that involves decreased energy production in those nerve cells. So the drugs being developed for this very rare disease, Friedreich's ataxia, might have more general applicability to Parkinson's. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're absolutely looking at this explosion of very new cutting-edge research going on in the genetic ataxias as something that's going to benefit other more common disorders. Um, certainly the idea of risk genes, which I'm specifically interested in, in in my patients with apparent non-genetic ataxia. Already there's been a little foot in the door in Parkinson's research, you know, where they have found a risk gene that sensitizes people to pesticides. And if those people are exposed to pesticides, they have a greater chance of developing Parkinson's. And that can absolutely feed back to the work that I would like to see done in, in the non-genetic ataxia community to look for other risk genes which we may then be able to go back and apply to other more common diseases. Um, We think because a disease is common, Parkinson's, that we know everything about it, and and we really don't. So, you know, I think there is a much more collaborative spirit going on in medical research now than there was 30 years ago. Um, Jerry Lewis once said on one of his telethons um, that uh, when he was speaking with the researchers who were doing research in muscular dystrophy, that he funded muscular dystrophy centers because he wanted the researchers to talk to each other. He did not want people sitting in their little castles, you know, guarding whatever little research they had done, you know, to, you know, move themselves forward, you know, professionally at at their universities. He wanted them to talk to each other to really move forward, you know, to get effective treatments. And and I think that is the overriding spirit now amongst, you know, all the collaborative groups doing research in ataxia. Great, yeah. Obviously, us at Regenomics believe in the same thing, that understanding of these rare diseases actually has profound implications of understanding of human health in general, and it can have great implications for all humanity. Absolutely. Yeah. What's the most common disease of all? Aging. And I think everything that we are doing now in genetic research is going to help us deal better with these unexplained things that lead to aging. Definitely. Another of the questions actually was interesting that one of the listeners put in is that this this listener had genetic testing previously that has been negative. And the question is, more and more genes are being sort of discovered. You know, how often should this individual be going back for genetic testing? And, you know, should this be something that, that he or she should consider doing on a regular basis? I have patients who in bits and pieces over 10 years have done all $17,000 worth of the current most popular ataxia gene testing panel, and they're still negative. Um, We suspect it's genetic, we know it's genetic, and we just haven't found it. Um, And I think that was the point that was brought up before, that you can continue to stay up to date with commercial testing and it is absolutely appropriate, you know, with the guidance of the person's physician, you know, if you've had the most, you know, the six most common gene tests done um, that account for 50% of the genetic ataxias that we see, and they're all negative. What about the remaining 10 or 15 tests that could be gotten commercially? You know, discuss it. Is it worth getting any of these? Well, no, this one is not worth it because it's recessive and you have a dominant ataxia. Or, you know, you know, this test is not worth getting because you don't look anything like somebody who has that particular genetic problem. So rather than just, you know, kind of trawling in every new gene test, which can be expensive and often will not be supported by insurance, um, you know, go in, get the common genes tested for, discuss further gene testing, and consider exome sequencing. Um, mm-hmm. Exome sequencing will not pick up triplet repeat mutations, um, at least that's what my group tells me, so that common triplet repeat types of mutations you know, would have to be checked for separately. 
but point mutations or other small mutations, um, and there are many that are known to cause ataxia, and there are many that are suspected to cause ataxia, could easily be picked up in exome sequencing. And then obviously genome sequencing, where you're looking at regulatory genetic material that's in between the genes, um, I think the role for research in both exome and genome sequencing is as great um, as, as the role for their, their use in clinical care. So, you know, like I say, in my clinic, I'm looking mainly at my middle-aged and older patients with slowly progressive ataxias who have been negative for everything else, and I'm using, you know, our available exome sequencing as a tool to get in and look for areas of derangement that maybe we haven't thought of. So they really should work with someone who can guide them, either a genetic yeah. counselor, a physician who's familiar with genetic testing, or you know certainly get more information from you know other patients or you know experts that are available to them. Got it. There's also some questions that um, some listeners have put in specific about different symptoms. I'll, I'll list them all at the same time about you know, ways that could make that sort of better, whether it's some have talked about sort of muscle pain associated with Friedrich's ataxia or urinary hesitancy or syncope, as well as um, sort of tremor, hand tremors. I know I just listed a whole bunch, but these are some of the questions that people have talked about associated with ataxia. Are there things that you would recommend for any of this? At the um, National Ataxia Foundation website, ataxia.org, I believe they have a document posted, because I know we were preparing it last year, that lists the common symptoms associated with ataxia, including tremors, including bladder dysfunction, and the available medications that can be used to control those symptoms. Every symptom you listed has at least six drugs that are available that could be used to, to help you know, improve those symptoms. Nobody should be in pain. Um, you know, physical therapy can often help that, but there are medicines that can help muscle pain and spasms. There are many medicines and strategies for bladder problems. I mean, in fact, the cerebellum, you know, the brain controls everything. The cerebellum controls the brain when you think about it. Um, bladder problems often relate to incoordination of bladder muscles. Um, so, you know, it, it can certainly be approached with medicines that will improve the coordination of those muscles, just like we have medicines for tremor, medicines for, you know, upright stability and balance and, you know, hand coordination. So I would check out the National Taxi Foundation website and see if they actually have posted that list of, of symptomatic medications that are available. Great. And, and some, you know, if people have even sort of mentioned, one of our listeners, um, sort of alternate therapies or even sort of medical marijuana. Are, have you heard of these being helpful at all? Um, East-West medicine, things like acupuncture, acupressure, have been found to be helpful certainly for symptoms of pain or spasm have been helpful for spasticity or muscle tightness. It's not clear that they're helpful for tremor or for balance and coordination. But, you know, I think east-west medicine techniques, you know, are are worth exploring. Medical marijuana, you know, certainly it has been helpful for nausea, it's been helpful for dizziness, it's been helpful for pain. Um it has a lot of regulations around it. Um, I think you know people have to be aware that just like you can use alcohol to treat tremor, 
you know, and there are types of tremor where if you have a shot of something, the tremor will go away for a while. You can use medical marijuana in that way, but there there's a downside. You know, alcohol is intoxicating. Medical marijuana can, you know, dull thinking or slow up reaction time. So there may be a trade-off um, relative to the use, certainly, of medical marijuana symptom, you know, symptomatically. Um, and it has to be done, you know, under a doctor's supervision um, and within the regulations of the place where those people live. Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's sort of good advice there. I guess our and last question... there is a part of the FDA um, and the NIH that is interested in doing trials of alternative um, therapies. You know, there's a pot of money that's been set aside to really do scientific investigation of some of these things. Uh huh. Great. Yeah. Maybe so it's that not those being ignored be, by our government. Yeah. Complementary me- methods to help. Complementary. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Our last question is sort of combining some of the questions that the listeners have put in in terms of things that may trigger ataxia. So um, one listener talking about potentially asking whether sort of having a thyrotoxicosis and hyperthyroidism and using radioactive iodine, whether that could potentially tr- you know, trigger ataxia or having a sort of a QRE malformations because it's sort of, you know, it's related to the cerebellum there. Yeah, well, heard of any, QRE uh, malformations are known to cause dysfunction in the cerebellum because of pressure effects on the lower part of the cerebellum. So that's a known cause, okay. usually in younger people, but sometimes in older people. And it's often easily found with brain imaging, like MRI imaging. Um, so, you know, and it's treatable. So it's absolutely mm-hmm. worth, you know, keeping on your list rare, but it's treatable. Mm-hmm. Certainly, um, thyroid disease um, as an example of, you know, hormone or metabolic problems that can affect the body, if your thyroid is low, it can cause ataxia. If you have antibodies that are attacking your thyroid, causing thyroid disease, those same antibodies may also attack the cerebellum or do something to the immune system that can cause cerebellar ataxia along with the thyroid disease. So there's a lot of crossover pathways between the rest of the body and the brain and the cerebellum that use the immune system as a kind of a common conduit. Hidden cancers may produce bad antibodies or change the immune system in ways that may cause cerebellar ataxia, even sometimes before the cancer is found. So there's a lot of interplay between medical issues and ataxia. Radiation treatments, you know, like radioactive iodine, um, radiation for, you know, other conditions, um, general anesthesia, repeated head injury. These are factors where we don't know exactly what effect they have on the brain or on the cerebellum, but we're suspicious enough about repeated head injury, about, um, you know, problems breathing, lack of oxygen to the brain, um, you know, and possibly radiation exposure and other things that, you know, we're monitoring this. Um, Certainly, you know, we, we haven't, you know, restricted the list of environmental and medical things that can cause ataxia. You know, we, we're keeping an open mind and encouraging further research in, you know, in, in this epidemiology. Um, thyrotoxicosis, you know, where you have too much thyroid hormone can cause tremor or can increase tremor, but of itself it is not known to damage the cerebellum. 
low thyroid is more likely to damage the cerebellum. Um, and most doctors, in, in their first line evaluation of somebody with ataxia, they're going to look at thyroid, they're going to look at vitamin levels, they're going to look for diabetes, they're going to look for other common metabolic problems um, or toxic problems that could target certain medications. You know, people used to be given, and to some extent still are given, Dilantin for epilepsy. Dilantin, over a period of time, can weaken the cerebellum. Um, other anti-seizure medicines might be safer, but, you know, those studies are still going on. Um, there are certain heart medications and other, you know, chemotherapy medications that may target the cerebellum and its connections. So, you know, we really, when we're making a diagnosis of ataxia and looking for things we can modify, we, we look at everything. Um, we're not mm -hmm. just looking at genetics. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and being willing to sort of spend this extra time outside of the podcast. It's my pleasure. It is so important for people with rare diseases to know that there is science that is interested in helping them and that they have access to it. That is great. Nobody should feel that they're alone. Absolutely not. So everybody who's been on this conference call needs to act as an ambassador to bring more information to other people. Great. Well, thank you. For I think more information, you pointed to the website ataxia.org um, as well as um, CureFA, and those will be great resources. And hopefully people will be able to sort of learn more through these very sources. Good. And Great. Thank you very thank much. Thank you and your organization for tackling this problem of making genetic testing available to people um, and in a safe you know, and legal and affordable way. Yes, we hopefully sort of do our little part in sort of helping the problem with rare diseases since it is such a large problem. So we, we try to do our part. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.